the Yang Gang Roundtable. It is Friday, June 26, 2020. We're very fortunate to have both Reverend Wendy Hamilton and Quintus Jett with us today. Wendy Hamilton, I have followed you for a long time on Twitter and always appreciated your unique perspective. You know, you bring um, like the the Yang policies come from kind of a different place with you, a faith-based place, which is Mm-hmm. rare and valuable and i'm very happy to have you on the show to talk about that and also dr quintus jet who i have just today met thank you so much uh for joining us um i'd like to uh let you guys introduce yourselves in turn um should we start with with you uh reverend wendy hamilton sure that's fine and you can call me rev wendy for short just okay. you know just don't call me late for dinner and we'll be fine um <laughs> But my name is Reverend Wendy Hamilton. I am in Washington, D.C. I'm originally from Ohio. I am a minister. I most recently pastored a church here locally just outside D.C., um, the Open Door Metropolitan Community Church. I also do community activism. I work with truancy students. And I most recently uh, was the director of spiritual and cultural outreach for the Andrew Yang campaign and still work as an advisor to, to the campaign and to Humanity Forward. That's great. Great to hear. Um, and Dr. Quintus Chet. Um, former president of Abundance for America, one of the super PACs devoted to um, Andrew Yang, uh, background as a, a management professor uh, who has um, who has a very much a lot of um, attachment to issues of faith. So that's why I'm really excited just to just sit here and, and, and listen to Reverend Wendy today. <laughs> Fantastic. Man, Let's just think about faith to start as a really broad societal concept, not even tied to religion, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have, we 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 have a crisis of faith in our institutions at the moment, and uh, you know, I'd say it's unfortunately deserved. Our institutions are pretty corrupt; <laughs> they're not serving us, you know, by and large. And we're having this this societal crisis in America right now. Mm-hmm. So glad we could have you guys both on because you have a different. I mean, you know, you're in a different perspective <laughs> on um, than alum a lot of other people we often have on, but we're all basic income advocates. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about that? Where should we start with this conversation? Anybody? Um, I, no one's introduced themselves well, other than you guys. So we've got Faye, Faye Jeremy, and both Faye's. I'd Jeremy. love to lead off with a, with a question for, Do- for Reverend Wendy. Um, sure. So uh, I have a question, which is, um, feels like uh, religion and politics are forced to be somehow separate in our society because churches lose some sort of status, tax exempt status, if they right. try to participate in politics. But mm-hmm. um, there seem to be a lot of very political sort of leaning churches. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering why, um, why uh, you know, like Democrats don't find a way to, you know, mobilize people through um, the moral case for, you know, for doing the right thing. I feel like, you know, the right has somehow cornered that, and I don't know why. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. And I wanted to, uh, just before I get to the answer, uh, Shell, you, you mentioned that, you know, faith in terms of people losing faith in institutions. And I would say that, yes, there is a broad swath of the electorate that probably can identify with that. I wouldn't say everybody is identifying with that, but I, I would, you know, offer that uh, faith is not just about having faith in a particular religion or a particular, you know, spiritual tradition, but it also involves having faith in our leadership and having faith in our government, uh, you know, to to represent us and to do the right thing. And so that brings me to Faye and this uh, concept of the right thing, (laughs) because there are different definitions, even across spiritual traditions and faith traditions of what the right thing is. And when you speak about the Democrats uh, versus uh, the Republicans in terms of how they present faith issues and how they uh, navigate faith issues, even in their spiritual institutions, I would say that the Democrats actually do have, there is a moral left. We just, our, our message maybe is, is, is not resonating in the same way that the, the moral right is. And so there's been a movement in this country, if you are familiar at all, with Reverend Dr. William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. I mean, he is basically putting in the work and and promoting the ideas because what I would say to you is that the concept of faith, religion, spirituality, 
from a democratic or left-leaning perspective is rooted in social justice. It's rooted in looking out for the poor and the least of these and the widowed and those who have no voice and can't, uh, you know, cannot speak for themselves. So there are plenty of people amplifying that message. However, it is getting drowned out in many ways by those who feel like they have a more moral high ground. And there is no such thing as, as a more moral high ground. There's just moral ground. It just, it, it is based on how you view morality. And so that's a conversation that's going back and forth. While I don't necessarily agree that churches should be uh, advocating directly for, for you know, spiritual and religious freedoms and things of that nature, because I do respect the separation of church and state. However, I also recognize that there is just a direct link when it comes to uh, spiritual principles and political principles. That's part of what brought me to the Andrew Yang campaign, because what he's talking about is social justice. And what he's talking about is looking out for for humanity and taking care of each other and doing things in the way that we used to do them as a country, the principles that we were founded upon. When I discovered him, uh, it was February of 2018. Okay, so I'm I'm OG Yang Gang. <laughs> I was I was there from the from the beginning. I'm OG YG. And I happened to read an article in the New York Times in February 2018 called The Robots Are Coming. And it was introducing this young Asian gentleman who had just put his name in the hat for the 2020 D Democratic presidential nomination. Now, mind you, this is 2018, right? So I'm, I'm still, I'm still, you know, sort of reeling from 2016. I'm like, 2020, like who's even thinking about that right now? I'm still in shock with what's going on here. But at the same time, as I began to read the article and he started talking about the threats of automation, he started talking about, you know, why Trump was actually elected, the, the real reasons that got him there, the job losses that, that you know, occurred across the Midwest and, and people feeling like they're unheard. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, wait a minute, I, I'm kind of liking what this guy is saying. And then he started, you know, talking about ways, tangible ways to address some of these issues, not just pie in the sky ideas, not just things that you put out there that have no hope of getting through Congress. But he was talking about you know, helping people and specifically with the universal basic income and putting a thousand dollars a month in people's hands. And so I started thinking about my upbringing in small town Ohio, where my grandmother and my grandfather worked for uh, the shoe factory and the uh, the atomic plant. And back in those days, I'm going to tell on myself, but, you know, in the late 70s, my age, um, <laughs> when I was growing up, if you made 18, 19 dollars an hour, you were you were living pretty well. You were you were, you know, relatively middle class in those days. And so we, you know, we were doing pretty good there. But when those jobs started getting automated away, when they started getting shipped overseas, there was nothing that came in comparable to replace them. And so our small town fell into despair. And there there was no job training, you know, retraining programs because, you know, my grandfather went straight from high school right into the factories. So there was no option for him to now suddenly at, you know, 60 or 55 years old, want to go learn coding. Like, really? No, that, you know, he, he, he didn't, wasn't in a position to do that. And so there was a lot of struggle and a lot of despair and depression. And I started thinking about, as I'm reading this article, introducing Andrew, that what if they had a thousand dollars a month though, to tide them over until they could, you know, make decisions on what their next move would be and how much of an impact that would have made in their lives. And when I said that, I said, he's offering a tangible solution. I don't know who this dude is, but I'm with him. I want to help him spread this message because this is spiritual. This is talking about looking out for people who are hurting, looking out for people who can't provide for themselves and doing something for them, not because they, um, earned it per se, it's because they are entitled to it based on their birthright. And that, in my estimation, is spiritual and faith-based. And I signed on right away. Yeah. I mean, just to have faith that another person has value is kind of fundamental to society, right? When you look at a person, 
You don't want to go like, oh, I don't know if they're any good or not. Like, of course, yeah. people have value inherent. That's like the strength of us as a species. We survive because we care about each other. That's the only way. An individual human is not very great by themselves. <laughs> and if that, we don't, yeah, if we don't care about strangers, to be. society just breaks down. It, it doesn't seem to be obvious, though, Shale. The way that you say it's like it's obvious, but where it's I live, it doesn't yeah. seem to be. No, obvious. it's 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 uh, counterintuitive in our current American culture. It is not obvious. It's not, it wasn't taught to me to be obvious. It's something I, you know, figure it out. <laughs> well, in well, fact, that's actually something that I wanted to ask uh, the Reverend about, which is uh, Christianity seems to be saying that um that all people are born sinners and so does that create sort of uh it's very opposite to how chinese people have been taught in confucianism Mm -hmm. is that all people are born an empty slate and generally good and you have to Mm -hmm. you know teach them to go in the right direction i think Mm -hmm. the teaching to go in the right direction is also there in christianity but there's sort of this you know everybody just starts out as already sullied or or somehow you know if that is your particular interpretation of Christianity. So I want you to be clear that there are various interpretations and various descriptions of Christianity. That particular tenet is, is held and more, more readily found in your evangelical and more fundamental understandings of Christianity, but that is not across the board. And that's the thing about Christianity that some people don't understand, and particularly those who would give the impression somehow that their interpretation of who Jesus is and what Jesus stood for is the only one. You know, to put yourself in your in a position to suggest that says that you don't know much about Christianity and how the religion itself, you know, was cultivated, how it came about, and what the general tenets of it were. And so I don't want to get into a religious debate about that, but I want you to be clear that, you know, the religion in and of itself is subject to interpretation and no one has the corner market on how it is defined. That's true. But the question is, how do we speak to those people who really are in the evangelical group, which is a lot of people in my area? I live in rural East Texas. And Mm -hmm. so where I am, Bless your this is the, uh, yeah, the, I'm getting a lot of the prevailing, you know, the information from my local churches, which I attend with all of my friends. Right. Well, let me say this to you, that one of the things that transcends even religion is money and need (laughs) and lack thereof. And so what I have found is we may not necessarily agree on, on, you know, positions within the scripture, but where are the areas that we can agree? And let me talk, you know, talk to you about those things, because at the end of the day, it's not our job to convert anybody else. It's our job to live out a model of life that we, you know, aspire to live before them. If they have questions about why you seem to be, uh, you know, in a place that you are, you know, feel free to answer them. But this idea somehow that I have to necessarily convert somebody over to my way of thinking never works out. What we can do is find the areas, you know, where we can agree and let's do do some work on those. That's why I, I believe so strongly in UBI, because the you know, I, I posted earlier today. So I have been pastoring a, a, a small country church here outside of D.C. Um, and we were going through a lot of churches are experiencing, you know, membership decline and attendance decline just across the board, because even the numbers in terms of religious believers is, is going down. So that's, you know, that's a whole nother uh, conversation. But um, my small church, you know, when, when the pandemic hit, that, that did not help where we already were, you know, and so we had, we made the tough decision that we were going to have to close this church. I'd only been with them for a couple of years, but, um, you know, that's where we, you know, where we've landed and what we've decided to do. But, you know, in the, um, in the midst of doing that, that doesn't, that doesn't change the mission. And the fact that if, if, if perhaps my members had UBI, (laughs) you know, or, and perhaps I had UBI, then we would be able to continue the work and, and, and maybe, you know, you know, for a little bit longer until we figured out something to do. There are evangelical churches having the same conversation. So you can go into them talking about these principles from the standpoint of, you know, I may not agree with your position or your work, but what you can agree on is that you could use some more money to keep it going. Can you not? And that's where you begin to have the conversations, because once you find a a place of connection, people begin to build up trust with you and then they're open to hearing more about you. But if I don't know 
and, and you don't know me, I'm not automatically going to invite you to share your ideas or be open to those until I've made some measure of connection with you. So let me find a place to connect and then the other stuff we can get to later. Um, I, Wendy, I really think you hit the nail on the head. By the way, this is Ariel here. And I think that's how Yang courted so many former Trump supporters, which I am one of them, because the Democrats kept going like, especially um, what's his name? Like, like, you know, the Democratic Party was like, you don't want to vote for Hillary because you're racist and you're bad. And then if if you're if you're struggling financially, discrimination or people being discriminated against is the last thing on your mind when you're mm-hmm. thinking, what is my net? Where, where am I going to get my next paycheck from? Discrimination mm-hmm. is the last thing on your mind. So when Yang came in and he says, hey, hang on, I know why you guys voted for Trump, because he mm-hmm. spoke to your problems, but his right. solutions were messed up and he didn't have right. the right solutions. I right. jumped on Yang Gang like in a heartbeat. Right. And I was right. I was just amazed that in 2016 the Democrats just shunned so many people who are suffering financially in this country and just pinned the, the voting for Trump on discrimination rather than thinking about the least of these. You mm-hmm. know? Well, what I'll say to that is that um, I wouldn't I would not necessarily just say it was the Democrats because it, it really is about reading the moment and reading the time and reading the electorate. And so in that regard, I would say the Democrats probably misread the the time and what, what's happening because I think the the atmosphere and the time calls forth the candidate. Does that make sense? And so I feel like because yes. the Democrats missed it and 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 Trump in his own way was endeavoring to speak to a larger issue that was the issue people were more focused on at the time. And therefore he became the candidate. Andrew came with a message this time. The, the thing, the, the, the advantage of course that Trump had was that he was already well-known. He already had a presence, you know, he already had a following. And so people understood who he was. Andrew had a dynamic message, still does, but nobody knew who he was two years ago. You know, we, we started out in some very small places talking to people and, you know, even a year later, it was kind of like, who, what's his name again? What, what's you call him? You know, so, so we had to spend a lot of time just, you know, introducing people to who he was, you know, in order to get them to listen to his message. We knew, I knew he had the message day one. I knew that he had the message. And so my, and, and me being in, a, you know, the spiritual and the faith community wanted to be someone who went into some of these communities. I used to be in the evangelical community. That's why I can speak because, you know, I, my, my theology has evolved and is much more progressive now, but I was there. So I know that thinking. I was there for many years. So I know that thinking. And, and as a matter of fact, what I see myself as, as a, is a bridge to both communities where I can go in and I can speak the language of the evangelical from a progressive standpoint and share with them where there are points of connection and where that, you know, according to the faith that we claim to follow, we can join uh, together to get problems solved for humanity. And, and uh, Wendy, why do you think like the media industrial complex and the DNC constantly gave him the least amount of time to speak, constantly got his name wrong, constantly, uh, you know, got a, a, a picture of him wrong. It just seemed that at a certain point, it just became deliberate. It's like they wanted to keep his name recognition low. I mean, it may have seemed like that. I, I don't believe that it was a coordinated effort at the end of the day. And I've been in politics too for a while. And the reality is much of what they do is about ratings. And ratings is built on the narratives that you can create and the people that you can insert in, into those narratives. And at the time, they just, they didn't know. And we also, what we don't understand, we fear. And so, or what we don't know, you know, we, we, we fear. So they didn't know who this Andrew Yang guy was. You know what I'm saying? And they didn't know, should they take him seriously? Should they not? Is he just an internet thing? Because he doesn't seem, you know, to have any, you know, tangible support outside of, of Twitter and, and Facebook, and, and, and maybe this is just a mirage, 
And so we're not going to take him seriously until we have to. And so while I'm not excusing, you know, some portions of what I do believe was a media blackout at some point, uh, you know, where they were just deliberately not including him in certain graphics and things like that. But at the same time, I also have to acknowledge that we were unknown, that we were we were wholly grassroots. We were doing everything we could in our power to get the media to, to you know, to invite Andrew to different um, events and to include his name. And we were certainly holding them accountable when they didn't. But I honestly think that for the most part, they just did not take us seriously or believe that we were much of a threat until now. I don't know if you all remember back. We also have to be honest like that. That first debate was not 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 the greatest for Andrew. You know, <laughs> that was the one he got maybe two minutes of speaking time. Um, right. But he also um, the, the whole debate experience was new for him. And so the media and I'm just telling you this from the behind the scenes, a lot of folks wrote him off after that. They were like, oh, he's not serious. He couldn't even speak up at the you know, at the event. Not never mind. They didn't ask him a lot of questions. But at the same time, they kind of they kind of pulled back on us like, OK, we're going to we're going to chill and see where this goes. But what happened was the people powered uh, campaign that we had that got him into the next debate. They started having to pay attention. You have to remember, there were 27 people running for the Democratic. Now, 27 when it first started out. Mm-hmm. So they had to also make up in their minds who was serious and who was not. And so it just took them a little longer than we needed to for them to catch on. But now he's a household name. So perhaps it was worth it. <laughs> and also I'd, I'd add that it's also there's issue of money, because in a year before the the Iowa caucuses, the way that they decide and who they give attention to is how much money you raise. And so, you know, if, if Yang had raised ten million dollars after the second quarter instead of the third, mm-hmm. he would have gotten more attention. But but it just didn't the, the fundraising had, didn't really kick in for real until like last summer, you know? Yeah, that's true because they, that's another reason, that's another way that they deem you viable is how much money you're raising, you know, whether that, that means anything or not, because I mean, you know, the Mike Bloomberg's of the world, Tom Steyer, you know, he came in with his billions and he knew that he was going to be kind of an underdog. He didn't get a lot of press either, uh, other than the stuff that he bought with his own money, uh, you, you know? And so again, they make these decisions that, you know, from a corporate standpoint that really aren't necessarily designed to blackball anybody in my, in my, you know, estimation, but at the same time, they, they sometimes miss the opportunity to celebrate and elevate those who have demonstrated time and time again, how serious they are. And now they're here on the back end, Andrew's everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere you look, he's showing up on a podcast. He's showing up on The View. He's showing, you know, so now Stephen Colbert, I mean, John Stewart mentioned something the other night, like Yang Gang 2020, you know, so he's <laughs> everywhere now. So, uh, yeah, it was their loss. It was their loss. You know, it's like so, you said, you know, <laughs> money is the great unifier. That's like, go on, Faye. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's fine. Um, okay. So I want to talk about something like my family's doing in little old, um uh, Washougal, Washington, tiny little town. Uh, they're very involved in their church. And my grandpa has collected a bunch of different people, uh, different churches information uh, in the different kind of services that they put together. Like my grandpa works at, it's called Treasure House. It's just a thrift store, but like they collect food from Safeway that's, you know, expiring and they give it to homeless families and stuff. I'm curious, do you know about other uh, networks of churches that have these resources that are working together in order to help direct um, the people who need them? Uh, like, do you know much about this at all? Well, I would say that, you does know, that make sense what I'm saying. It, yeah, in, in, yeah, it does. Um, I would say that there are a number of churches, you know, statewide that 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 that's the work of the church that that also is social justice. That's what the church is ultimately about, feeding and providing for those who don't have enough. And so, like, for for instance, the church where I was recently pastoring, we partnered with the local food bank. You know, it was uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. So it was like the Western Montgomery County Food Bank. And we would, you know, take in donations. And then uh, uh, one of our church members every month and we, you know, we would take what we had over to the local food bank. And so I think that is a work that is going on locally all over the country. Those kind of works, unfortunately, are not the ones that get highlighted. Those, those, 
those don't bring ratings, the, the good things that are happening. But if there's some kind of, you know, crazy, uh, you know, person that, you know, says some wild and, and outlandish thing at a, at a sermon or something like that, that's going to, you know, that's going to be breaking news. And so well, unfortunately, we have to work to do these things and continue doing them behind the scenes. Well, so, I guess what I'm curious about is, are there networks that exist that uh, are already connecting these different churches? Because like, um, what I found out from him is people are double dipping, triple dipping from all these different resources and the people who need it aren't actually getting it yet. I, I mean, I met a guy here in uh, San Diego and he grabs, you know, seven, eight bags of bagged food for his family and has to like hike it back up, you know? And so mm -hmm. like, uh, I'm, I'm just curious if you know about existing networks like that. Well, not off the top of my head, but I could certainly look something up and send that to you, you know, as I look for the information, but uh, let me let me say too that these are also pretty desperate times as yeah. we all know. Yeah. and you know you say some people may be double dipping and 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 they may you know they very well may be but there may be some that are are in need of it uh you know for whatever reason and uh so you're always going to have those folks but yeah, I will, I will, you know, send you, I'll get your email information and find out, you know, what networks that I can send to you to let you know where that's happening. But just know that it, that it is happening. And um, there are a number of people who are doing it and they're doing it for the right reasons. Hey, uh, to, uh, to kind of piggyback on that, um, Rev. Wendy, uh, I guess, uh, could you, uh, I guess, kind of go into a little more depth of uh, why it's important that the church plays the role of the social safety net uh, versus the state? Well, I, I think that both play a role. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but I will say that church programs can and tend to be much more accessible and effective in, in, in my estimation because there's no means testing. I mean, at the end of the day, that's really the difference is that the state's going to make you jump through hoops and the church is going to say, open your trunk. And the difference so is tremendous. It's a colossal difference because so, I mean, what, like three fifths of applicants oh, yeah. for welfare get nothing, right? Ridiculous. So, and and not only and and also, and this kind of goes back to what Faye was saying about double dipping. You know, with with the state, they they also monitor and to a certain degree try to dictate how you utilize any resources that they provide for you, and if you don't use them, if you don't you know, spend them in a, in a, in a particular way. If you don't adhere to the guidelines, you could be cut off or you could get to a point where you, um, you are disqualified from a program simply because you made, you know, $10 on the side that they found out about, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so for me, those types of programs are not life affirming. They are not empowering. And so that, that they, all, you know, they are sometimes can be discouraging um, spiritually and, yeah. and, and, you know, from a motivational standpoint. And so where the church is and the foundation of the church has always been about not only providing for the least of these, excuse me, but also very much about those having more contributing so that those who didn't have any could 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 take from that. So you you see lots of scenes in Genesis and in the Old Testament where those who had more were willing, not forced, because of their their spirit of giving to bring their excess to the town square and dump it and then those who had the least be able to come and partake of those excesses that others had. That's yeah, that's so important because it's like it, it's it's like if you don't have some kind of foundation down there, you're basically on quicksand. And and then and then how can you pull somebody out of quicksand when you're in the quicksand yourself? You got to get a floor underneath you to pull those people out of the quicksand. So when the least of these keep getting less, everybody gets less. And then mm -hmm. sometimes when sometimes and then sometimes we have the most of these that that if they get a little more they can help out more and that's like that that's what a ubi is and that's what i see it as mm -hmm. uh wendy reverend wendwell we have you i want to ask you you deal with a lot of intractable people i'm sure as a person with a nuanced political position right so 
I, I'm, I made, uh, you know, I'm trying to do everything I can to, to get UBI. I'm trying to make connections with all kinds of different people from different parts of the political spectrum. And I saw, you know, Mitt Romney saying some, some sort of vaguely pro UBI things, doing some encouraging things. So, you know, I tweeted to him like, Hey, Mitt Romney, you know, uh, if you, if you back a UBI, you know, uh, you got my support, no matter what you do, you know, we can work together both sides of the aisle. And uh, just my tweet to Mitt Romney, one of my friends who's a liberal, she's like, no, you can't work with Mitt Romney because he is against abortion and you cannot under any circumstances do anything with it. And I'm like, well, we got to make hard choices and like women who don't have money can't have abortions anyway. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, I mean, it's already, this is the lesser of two evils in my mind. What do you think? And she just says, nah, that's a bad take. And that's like, it's like, she won't, they won't discuss it anymore. So I wonder do you have any rhetorical suggestions for what one does in that kind of a conversation? You must have been there many times. Well, here's the thing. I don't necessarily look at anybody as intractable because I don't expect anybody to view things exactly the way that I do. I don't expect for people to have to agree with the way that I see things. We can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. And we can look, as I said earlier, for things that we do have common ground on. Because there are certain things that are considered my values. So if you are someone who says that you respect me and you respect my values, then you would never expect me to compromise my values simply because you want me to agree with you. I can I can respect where you stand without having to join you in that moment. I, I can recognize that this is a place where we'll never probably agree. But let's look for a place where we can. And so when someone such as a friend of yours comes to you and says, well, well, you can't, you know, you can't work with Mitt Romney because he stands for this, thus and so. Why not? You weren't addressing Mitt Romney according to this, thus and so. You were trying to work with him on a point where you saw connection and agreement. And you can do that without compromising your values. It makes me think about and this is totally off topic, but anyway, it makes me think about when I was in seminary. So I went to Howard University. That's how I wound up in D.C. I left Ohio, came to Howard University here in D.C. for undergrad and then wound up going to, to divinity school there. And uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a pretty, not grew up, when, when I went to church, started going to church right after college, the church I joined was pretty traditional, evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, run around the church, you know, all the, all the stuff that you, you know, can think of. I, I used to do all of that, you know, and there, I found value and merit in that. But when I went to, so, but, so I had a very sort of rigid understanding of what Christianity was, kind of talking, you know, when I was talking to Faye early and this kind of interpretation that I had bought into because I hadn't really grown up in church. So this was my only church experience. So I trusted the leaders I was going. But but as I started doing my own research, it started to evolve. So I went to seminary, right? So I get to seminary and one of the classes we had was world religion. And the world religion you know, professor, first of all, I had been taught, this is just me, socialized to believe that all other religions are inferior to Christianity, right? I'm sure if anybody's familiar, you know that they've said that, okay, Faye, thank you for testifying. I'm not by myself. So, um, you know, you, you, we were taught that all other Christian, you know, other than Christian, it's not Christian. You know, we don't know that Buddhist stuff. We don't know that Confucius do. We don't know what he's talking about. You know, so, so we, we were kind of discouraged from, you know, exploring other religions. So I get to divinity school, which thank God to save my life, my spiritual life, because it opened up my mind. And we had this world religions class and they said, no. There are valid world religions. We're going to study all of them. If you're a seminarian, you're coming to study. And not only are you going to study them, you're going to go visit one of the services or churches that you're not used to. I said, okay, this that's it. You know, you're, you're pushing me. It's, it's one thing to study about someone else's way of thinking and way of worshiping. But don't, don't you know I want to get struck by lightning if or something, if I go, if I go visit another and, and, and one of the, but of course I, you know, I came around, I wound up going to go visit a Sikh temple, but I'm saying this to say that, that the, and the Sikhs are lovely people. Sikhism is a beautiful religion, very friendly, friendlier than some church people, but that's a whole nother sermon. Um, but I remember the struggle that I had around 
the idea that I was actually going to go and visit and talk to these people who believe totally different than I did and who I had been socialized to believe were so different and something was wrong with them. So I was crying to a friend on the phone saying, I got to go visit and speak temple and go talk. And he said, Wendy, he didn't say go convert. He just said, go talk to people. Aren't you studying their religion? Like, don't you, you know, I mean, aren't you a religion student? And that's a religion. So, so can't you go and have a conversation with them without feeling like you have to lay down all of your beliefs and where you stand and all of your values that, that you've learned just to go visit and have a conversation and reach out to somebody else? That doesn't make sense. If you are in a place where you feel like everybody has to think like you do, believe like you do, and worship like you do, what that says to me is you are, are a bit insecure in what it is that you really believe. Because if you were set in what you believe in and in your values, you wouldn't have trouble talking to people who thought differently than you or who, who believe differently than you. So I say that if a friend is trying to make you come over to their side and believe what they believe, you know, their way or the highway, it's because probably they're not as rooted and grounded in their way as, as they'd like you to think that they are. And so your validating them will make them feel more comfortable. And I say you, it's, that's not required. Thank you. Yeah. Amen to that. I love what you just said. Yeah. Because yeah, I go amen. to, I go to every church, anybody who asks me, and it might not be a church. It might be a mosque. It might mm -hmm. be a meditation, a place to yeah. meditate that doesn't even yeah. talk about religion. It right. might be just a, uh, you know, a temple of uh, some other type that is not, you know, and, and I go to all of them. If somebody asks me to come join them, because right. in my local towns, this is the only way people socialize sometimes. They don't right. know any other way. And so, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> He's playing Minecraft. <laughs> but, you right. know, I, I feel like uh, that's, that's uh, something that we're not getting to do enough of because we all sit in our group. And we don't join the other groups very often and we're terrified of them. Right. And so that's that. that and so back to back to Yang, because I'm, I'm always going to bring it back to Yang. <laughs> that that's in, in a sense what he represented. He represented this place where all people could come from different walks of life, from different, you know, backgrounds, religions. I mean, as his spiritual advisor, I spent a lot of time, of course, talking to uh, religious faith communities, particularly the black church and Christian churches. And But I also, you know, talked to non-faith people and we would be out there on the trail. We had a big, uh, you know, a faith town hall where Andrew got a chance to talk about where he stands in his own faith. And, you know, the guy in the front row was atheist for Yang, you know, and he was like, well, I want to be here too. And I said, well, I'm glad you're here. I want you to be here too, you know, right. because is not just about one no particular faith tradition has the market on and, and i'm not going to tell you that you as an atheist haven't found some sort of connection to yang that 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 it is any less valid than those of us who have faith have found a faithful connection were you involved in creating those those values that uh became the humanity first uh values we had six and one of them <laughs> was abundance one of them was that's one of my that's one of my favorites and i think that's mm -hmm. very christian and also the grace and forgiveness, right? I would love to say that I was, but they were already there, you know, and already being crafted when I got there. But again, it was another thing that drew me because like you just said, those are spiritual principles. You know, those, you know, grace, forgiveness, abundance, love, happiness, joy. Those are things that anyone, a person of yeah. faith or not of faith, these are just humane ways in which, you know, we, you know, have been created to interact with one another. And he, you know, the message that Yang was, you know, I tell people I was preaching the gospel of Yang because what he was essentially trying to do was to sort of get us back to that very basic sense of who we were as human beings before all of this strife and division and, 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 and you're this party and I'm this party and you're right and I'm wrong and you're left. It was not right. It was not left. It was forward. That that that's what really spoke to me. And and you know what I love about him the most? Like Yang represents in some sorts like the data, the science, the technology, Silicon Valley type computers, kind of like you know, data mm -hmm. and math. And then and then but we've always seen that science, data, and math always want to butt heads with like faith, religion, and spirituality. But what's right. so wonderful about the Yang movement, you got science, logic, common sense, data, and math, and, and it meshes with 
spirituality and religion in such a positive way that they're actually coming together and not butting heads. <laughs> right. Well, that that too speaks to though the type the type of, of man you know Andrew is, and I you know he's he's my friend, and I you know I, I you know care about him and his family, but he is just an an outstanding human being. I don't know you know what other word I was you know trying to seek because if you know as smart as he is and as much as he had happening you know in him and 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 all throughout the campaign, he remained humble. He walked in a level of humility that even he would be shocked sometimes at the responses that he would get. You know, people coming up, I tattooed your face on my arm. You know, it's like, you know, I stayed up all night and I read all of your policies for 15 hours and then sleep for three days. You know, so it's like, he'd be like, okay, great. You know, but, and so all those were a little extreme. But then at the same time, you'll get a woman who will come up to him in tears and she'll say, thank you. My son has been in a depression for the last two years and has not come out of his room other than to eat or to, to maybe use the restroom or something. We could not reach him. And someone entered, he found your website. Someone yanged him. And I have not seen this spark of life in my son you know, in over two years, he's now feeling like he has a purpose and he has something to live for and he has something to connect to. That's spiritual. That's faith. People have faith in what Andrew was saying and in him as a person to not only say it, but to actually go forward and do it. And he's living that out now by even though not attaining the office, He's still doing what he said he came to do. And I'll I'll end this part with this. When he felt the sense to run, because for him, this was not just a vanity ego trip for him. He said, I don't, you know, he said, I didn't wake up one day and say, "Hmm, I think I want to run for president because he's like, I'm not uh, insane. But, But he knew that deeply he felt a sense of this, of the need for him to run, of the time and the moment calling for him. And when he went to to Evelyn to talk to her about running for the presidency and ask her permission, because it wasn't going to happen if Evelyn didn't say, okay, she, after talking with him, she looked at him and she listened and she said, and, and Evan by, Evelyn, by the way, is devoutly Christian. She said, you have to do this. Like, after she understood the UBI and he broke everything down to her, she said she looked at him and felt like this was much bigger than him. And it was something that he needed to do. And so, of course, she would agree to um, to support him in it because it was bigger than him. So what when, should when you see a leader doing? with humility like that, it can really restore a person's faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Did it for uh, me? At least. It, I mean, I, I don't mean it makes them religious, but it can it can restore faith if they simply had a lack of of faith in general, of, of things right. to be faithful in. When you see someone right. in a leadership position mm-hmm. who could who could grandstand like is traditional and expected uh, in American culture today and on television everywhere we see, but instead humbles themselves and says, no, no, I'm not any better than you. I am here as a leader only because I can get you what you want. I'm working for you. That mm-hmm. is an inspiring thing. You know, yep. that, that reminded me of something that I, I'd forgotten about what leadership could be. I think a long time ago. I don't know when, but it's it's very inspiring. Well, so I'd like to pivot to current events and find out what should we be uh, following right now. What is the leadership right now? I love the uh, the Poor People's Campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Are we? Are I feel that they're the most Yang Gang aligned organization out there because mm-hmm. they were also built on Martin Luther King's um, sort of principles, right? Right. So what can we be doing right now that you think is the most important to respond to all this police brutality that's going on, COVID-19? I mean, we're in a very unusual time. <laughs> well, I think the first thing you can do is just make sure you're taking care of yourself, because at the end of the day, we can't be any good to any organization if we're not being good to ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And this is a lot we are experiencing a lot. If you look at, you know, the pandemic, 
that, you know, caught all of us off guard, you know, in terms of just the gravity of what we were facing. I mean, we kind of knew, but we didn't know, you know, and then the economic fallout and the number of people who suddenly found themselves without a job, without an income, without a means to survive. You know, I, I'm so grateful that, you know, Andrew put forward the humanity forward and we started giving out the $250 grants and I was assisting with that. And I was just broken in tears listening to some of the, the stories, you know, as I was calling people, you know, or people were, were writing in their requests and saying, I, I can't get my medication and I'm in, I'm in my car with my daughter. And, and, you know, some of that is still going to be happening here because we're about to face the unemployment benefits um, ending here at the end of July. And some of these states that have had eviction moratoriums, they're about to lift those. And so some people that haven't gone back to work yet because the economy has not gotten back yet are going to lose their, their, their homes. And so my thing is take care of ourselves, but find, fill in where you fit in. The thing is, there are big national campaigns like, you know, the, uh, you know, Poor People's Campaign is one that you pointed out. There's the ACLU is doing a lot of things. There's the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights is doing a lot of things. But but there's 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 also it's really important to get involved locally because sometimes we, you know, we go and and want to help with these national campaigns. But a lot of these national campaigns have have local outreaches and find out what's going on in our community because we really are going to have to get back to the idea of taking care of our neighbors. Can our I neighbors. also add, I want to add something. So, sure. um, I mean, a lot of people are entering the homeless uh, realm for the first time in their lives. You know, they're jumping into their cars the first time, but we are not prepared to even take on those people because like I, 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 I call myself nomadic, but you know, I'm homeless. Uh, but I'm, it's by right. choice, right? But um, I tried to go to the bathroom in two different locations, uh, a Denny's and a Starbucks, and I was not allowed to pee in them, yep. right? And I was like, where did the homeless pee? They pee yes. in the street where, you know, uh, that's going to make more yep. toxins. That's going to make them more sick, you know, and, and you are so close to entering into that yes. realm. We should be creating frameworks where we have public showers yes. that are available and porta potties yes. that are available, and we don't have any of that. And I don't even know where to start with that. Right. And stuff. that's why I'm saying find out locally, you know, if that's happening. And if it's not, I know in some cities, the Salvation Armies are providing showers and spaces for the homeless and, and meals. You know, the, the um, Catholic charities and different, you know, organizations such as those. Are, are meeting these needs in different in, in different parts of the country. So I would start, that's why I say start locally because what we see locally is ultimately going to play out nationally. And so if you are there, one way to take care of ourselves is to feel like we're doing something. You know what I'm saying? And so do something, even if it's making that phone call or going to visit the Salvation Army and, and making them aware, Faye, of the struggle and what's happening and, and asking them, holding some of these, these organizations accountable to their missions, you know, because a lot of these folks have put a lot of this stuff in their mission statements, but they haven't, they either haven't fully lived into it or they haven't been faced with the opportunity like they are now to actually step up and be and, and fulfill the mission that they say that they um, were created to do. So that would be my encouragement to you, Faye, is, is yes, look at some of the national programming, but most of those uh, programs have a local branch and we're going to have to take care of each other because the, the size and the proportion of this program, if it's not addressed locally, is going to make it even more exacerbated nationally. Um, I, I wanted to give Wendy a chance to let us know, do we have a hard stop at in five minutes or should we continue a little longer? Yeah, I actually do. Is it, is okay. it almost three o'clock? We're almost, we're almost at, yeah. So 56 by my watch. So we should probably uh, say goodbye to everyone, but I also wanted to uh, ask if, um, uh, if Wendy, you might come back and talk with us again because we could use you again. Oh. <laughs> um, we need more Wendy here. As long as my schedule permits, I, you know, I'm happy to come back. You know, I, I love all things Jan Gang. This is my family. And that's the thing I've also loved about it, because not only are we talking about um, getting back to the principles of humanity first, we're actually modeling them, 
you know, for the most part for people. So we're not even as as supporters of Andrew Yang. We're not just talking about it. We're actually being about it. And people are taking notice of that. We're living it out. We're modeling it for them. And people are, are noticing and they say it all the time. You know, they would tell Andrew, man, you have some of the greatest supporters in the world. They're such nice people. I mean, even when I try to argue with them, sometimes they just they just smile at me and give me data. I don't, you know, points. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so yeah, I'd be happy to come back as my schedule permits and chit chat with you. Um, but I do thank you all for um, for having me today, and I, I hope that uh, some of what I shared was helpful. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. And, and, and Dr. Oh. Quintus, I'm sorry we didn't get to talk to you more. Well, actually, that was my me. question: is can Quintus stay with us a little bit longer? Because I would love to continue the conversation because I think we have more to talk about with phase issue. I think we could work on that a little bit more. Uh, with and uh, if if Wendy needs to pop off. We, can we stay for a little longer and continue our conversation? Yeah, I'm good. I think I can go for another 30 minutes. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. Let's, okay. let's do that. Well, thank, thank you, Wendy. You. Thank and, you so uh, much, Wendy. Do you thank you, Wendy. Like a, a, do you want to do your Twitter handle or something like that and let people know how to connect oh. with you? Yes. Yeah, so I'm at RevWendy3 on Twitter. I also have a YouTube channel where I'm doing uh, spirit talks. They're kind of like spiritual TED Talks. I do them every Sunday. And it's the... Uh, called the Community of Compassion. So you can find me on YouTube. Just look up Rev Wendy Hamilton or Community of Compassion and you can follow me on Twitter. I have some other things, some other projects that I'm working on that I'll be announcing you know, down the road. But uh, those are the, the two places you can definitely find me. Um, I'm on Facebook, but not as much. And I go back and forth about whether how long I'm going to be on there. <laughs> so, so, so Twitter are the places to be for now to, to find me. Thank you. And uh, Reverend Wendy, have you heard of the Compassion Course Online? It's uh, I, I, built on, okay, I'm trying to get Yang Gang to participate in that with me. And maybe we could have like a, a small group of people doing the Compassion Course. It's a year-long course on nonviolent communication. I think it would right. be a great organizing tool. What do you think yeah, about I agree. that? Yeah, it's something to definitely look into. I, I am mindful that it is a year commitment and some people don't know what's going to happen next week. So they may not be as open right now uh, just because of the uncertainty that's happening. But I definitely think it's useful and something that, you know, we should consider down the road. OK, OK. Thank you. Thank you very much. OK. Have a good one. Goodbye. Thank you, Wendy. Bye bye. Thank you, bye.